God orchestrated the Apostle Paul's encounter with a Roman officer. He orchestrated Paul's deliverance from the band of zealots who would kill him. And he orchestrated Paul's trial before Felix, a corrupt and indecisive man who would put off judgment long enough to avoid judgment. Now, as the apostle faces yet another judge, Festus, God's perfect plan for Paul begins to take shape. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Rather than send Paul back to Jerusalem as his accusers requested, Festus decides that the apostles' trial will take place right where they are, in Caesarea. In that trial, Paul appeals to Caesar, and as a result, Festus will send him off to Rome. Join Dr. Boyce as he opens the curtain on a stage set to send Paul to his final destiny and the fulfillment of God's purpose for his life. One of the really amazing things about the work of God in the life of a Christian is the way in which he uses circumstances to bring about his own desirable ends. And not necessarily what we might think of as large or dramatic circumstances. Sometimes, indeed quite often, it is the little circumstances of our lives. The Apostle Paul is an example of that, and we see an additional bit of God's plan for his life through circumstances in the chapter that it's our privilege to study now. I think, as I approach it, of what the Lord Jesus Christ had said to Paul when he was still in Jerusalem, when he had been the victim of the outrage of the mob in Jerusalem and had been taken into custody and no doubt was fearing for the future. And Jesus appeared to him and said these words, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Lord Jesus Christ told Paul that he was going to testify about him in Rome. And when we realize that and we look at the story, we see a vast tapestry of circumstances that God used to bring that about. Some of them go back quite far in Paul's life. He was, for example, born of a Roman citizen and therefore had Roman citizenship. Up till now in the story, as we find it in the book of Acts, this does not seem terribly important. But uh, suddenly it becomes important and it emerges as of great importance in this 25th chapter of the book. It was the matter of the false accusations brought against Paul by the Asian Jews who were there in Jerusalem on this occasion at the same time he was. Paul had no anticipation that they would be there. He certainly had no expectation that an accusation of this nature would be made. But suddenly, as it seemed from out of the blue, here were these men who knew his stance so far as freedom for Christians from the ceremonial law of the Jews was concerned, and they broke out in public in accusations which led to a riot, which in turn led to Paul's arrest, and 
all of that circumstances in the hands of Almighty God was circumstantial, but of God that the man who was in charge of the arresting party was such an outstanding officer. And it was of circumstance, but nevertheless circumstances controlled by God, that when the 40 zealots of the Jews got together and took an oath saying that they wouldn't eat or drink until they had killed Paul, setting about an assassination plot, that Paul's nephew, a young boy, just happened to be there in Jerusalem to overhear of it, come to Paul, and then at Paul's direction was able to tell the story to the Roman commander. So he pulled together a detachment of soldiers and had Paul escorted from the city where his life would have been in continuous danger and brought eventually to Caesarea. Paul appeared before Felix. We looked at that trial. Felix, I suppose, if he had done the right thing, should have acquitted Paul. Humanly speaking, as we look at the story, we would have said, well, that's what we would have desired. Certainly that Paul would have been set free. That wasn't the way God worked things out. Rather, Felix delayed. It was a characteristic of the man not to act decisively. And he delayed for two years until eventually, as we find out in this story, he was succeeded by another governor called Festus. And the character of Festus comes into the story at this point. One of the things we find by circumstance is that when the Jews said to Festus, now that you're here, we can get on with this business that concerns Paul, why don't you bring him up to Jerusalem so he can be tried? We find that Festus said no. He said, rather, he'll be tried in Caesarea. You come down there. Now, that's interesting because in this story, a little later on, he proposes to Paul the very thing that his Jewish accusers proposed originally. Wouldn't you like to go up to Jerusalem to be tried there? But at the beginning, he said no, and so one more little piece of the puzzle falls in place. And eventually, in the midst of this story, Paul makes his appeal to Caesar Festus, who was a very decisive man, replies immediately, and so the wheels finally get turning for that transfer of the apostle, now a prisoner, to Rome, where he had an opportunity to witness even within the court of the Caesar. Isn't it interesting how God uses circumstances in a Christian's life? Of course, what was true for Paul is true for us as well. If you're a Christian and if you look back over your life with any discernment, certainly you can see how God has used little circumstances of life to bring you where you are. In some cases, it's little circumstances, what we might even call trivial things that's brought you to the faith. A few moments ago, a woman that I've known here in the congregation for a long time told me something about her conversion that I had never heard before. She said, God used a horse to bring me to the Savior. She saw a puzzled look on my face. She said, haven't I ever told you that story? I said, no, as a matter of fact, you haven't. Well, I got it right. She told it very briefly as to the effect that her daughter got interested in horses. And eventually she joined an equestrian team where she met another Christian who was one of the riders and competitors who led her to the Lord. And then through that testimony, eventually this woman 
came to know the Lord as well. So she says, God used a horse in my salvation. If you look back over your life, you'll find there are many things like that. And that's worth remembering. Because you see, when we look back, we can be very, very wise as Christians. We can say, oh, I see how God used all these many circumstances. Isn't he wonderful? But in the midst of circumstances, especially when they don't seem so nice, we find ourselves questioning God's sovereignty and we say, goodness, I wonder if God knows what he's doing now. We have to learn from the past. We have to learn from the experience of people like the Apostle Paul, that there are no accidents with God. Nothing ever rises up suddenly to startle the Almighty, to make him scratch his head and say, oh my goodness, there's a dilemma. How am I ever going to get that Christian out of that one? God never reacts that way. God knows the end from the beginning. He plans it all. And every little thing that comes into your life, the failures as well as the successes, the disappointments as well as the Moments of happiness and satisfaction, all of that is from God. And he's working in you to accomplish his will, which where you are concerned is to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ and where others are concerned is by his grace and your testimony to bring them into the kingdom. So we need to trust him for it. Now this chapter, chapter 25, tells of the trial of the Apostle Paul before Festus. Compared the trial before Felix, which occurs earlier, and the trial before King Agrippa, which follows, this account is relatively brief. No doubt because what happened here was of less significance, and also because what happened here had already been covered in the earlier story. In some ways, this is just a repetition. The same charges, the same response, but before another judge. And yet it's worth looking at the different characters in this particular trial. There are three bodies represented. There are the accusers, the Jews. There's the judge himself, Festus, who I said is a bit different, in some ways quite different from Felix who preceded him. And then there's the apostle Paul in the midst of all these circumstances. It's interesting to look at the Jews in this setting because what we see in their example is what I would call the corrupting effects of religion when it is not actually a contact with the living God. You see, we tend to look upon religion as a good thing. We say, well, you know, even if a person isn't really born again, doesn't really trust God, it's at least better to be religious than not religious, but that is not necessarily the case. Religion can be very corrupting because what happens is that if the life of God is not present in the worshiper, that is, if the person is not regenerate and therefore growing because of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ within, then religion becomes a veneer, hypocrisy, and an excuse for doing what we really want to do. In other words, we use religion to cloak our sin and sometimes to justify what is quite obviously very horrendous action. We look back in history, some of the worst things that have ever been done in history have been done by people who thought they were doing the will of God, that is, religious persons. Now that's what we have here. We notice a progression. What we're told about these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem is that they wanted to have Paul transferred back to Jerusalem for trial, but that their real reason, says that in verse 3, is that they wanted 
to ambush the party and kill Paul on the way. That wasn't that interesting. Here are religious leaders, the head of the most enlightened nation in the whole history of the human race, plotting murder. You would think, of course, that the Decalogue alone would have kept them from it. The Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not murder. Exodus 20, verse 11. They might have pled, of course, that this was unusual circumstances, that Paul was actually guilty of a crime requiring death, and therefore they had to intervene to secure the death penalty. But even so, they were obviously violating the laws of their own religion, which provided quite strenuous defenses for one accused of a capital crime. We would say, to use our own terminology, they were doing everything possible to avoid the due process of the law. And the irony, you see, is that they were the upholders of the law. In Judaism, they weren't merely the secular leaders of the people, though they were that also, but they were also the religious leaders of the people. In Judaism, the secular law and the religious law was one. And yet here they were, quite willing to turn their back on their own laws to secure the death, the murder of this one they so obviously hated. Moreover, what we see, if we look at this very carefully, is the spread or growth of corruption. I say that because back in the 23rd chapter, where the plot to murder Paul was first concocted, we find that it was 40 men, zealots, no doubt, who were involved in the plot. These 40 men said, we think Paul should die, therefore we'll take an oath not to eat or drink until we secure his execution. They went to the religious leaders on that occasion. The religious leaders were not involved in the plot initially, but at that point, it would seem, they turned the other way, not looking, saying, well, you do what you will do, of course. We don't want to be a part of it, but if that's what you'll do, we'll at least do our part. We'll make an appeal to the commander to have Paul brought into the Sanhedrin again so you can get to him. You see, they were guilty, but they weren't actually the ones who initiated it, and they weren't actually plotting the murder. You turn to chapter 25, and now they're involved in the very thing the others were only involved in earlier. It's the way corruption spreads, and that's why in the Christian church we have to be so much on guard against it. It's very easy for religion to go astray, and very easy for those who, for one reason or another, fall into disobedience to the commands of God or who are plotting harm of someone else, to somehow pull God down into the picture and say, well, we're doing this because God demands that we do it. It's necessary if we're to be faithful to him. We have to be on guard against that. Well, that's the religious leaders. The second party to this proceeding was the governor himself, Festus. We notice right away one characteristic of this man, and that is, unlike Felix, who apparently was quite willing to delay and to delay indefinitely, not only in pronouncing judgment on Paul, which he certainly should have done earlier, he kept him in jail for two years, letting time pass, thinking that perhaps Paul or Paul's friends would give him a bribe. He also had delayed a decision in regard to the claims of Christ, which Paul pressed upon him. He said, well, when it's more convenient, I'll send for you. We'll talk about it some more. That was his character. Not so with Festus. Festus was a very abrupt and decisive man. You read after he arrived in the province, it was only three days 
that he took before he left Caesarea to make his way up to Jerusalem. Now, that is remarkable because he must have arrived by ship the way they tended to travel in those days. That was rigorous travel, not at all easy. You would have expected him to take time in his capital city of Caesarea to settle down, get things in order there. But no, no, this is a Roman governor. He's very direct in what he does. Jerusalem is the center of the nation, though not the Roman capital city. So he immediately goes up there to confer with the leaders of the people and see the situation that he's facing. And then, after spending eight or ten days with them, he makes his way back down to Caesarea again. You see, this is a man who literally is going places. He's trying to nail things down, take charge right away. And then we read in the same story that the next day, that is, as soon as he got down there, having brought down with him those who were going to make accusation against Paul, he immediately brought Paul forth and heard the case. Nothing indecisive about this man, no matter of delay in his case. And yet he had a great flaw. And in this respect, this Roman governor, Festus, was much like his predecessor. Because what we're told here is that he wanted to please the people, he wanted to show the Jews a favor. You might say, and he would, well, that's just a part of wisdom. When you're ruling, you have to get along with those that you rule. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. But you see, in this case, he was doing it at the expense of an innocent man. And Paul knew it, and Paul knew that he knew. And Paul says later on here in the context of his defense, I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well, and no doubt he did. If he hadn't been able to discover it on his own, he certainly could have learned it from his predecessor, Felix, because Felix had examined Paul and had concluded that he'd done nothing wrong. And yet, you see, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he compromised. Any right actions have been bartered away because those who knew to do right wanted to please someone else, or at least not offend people that they considered to be important. And that has been true for Christians and the church, as well as for those who are in the world. Perhaps it has been true for us as well. If it is, it's something to be repented of. At any rate, this chapter tells us of the trial, though in very brief language. Verse 7 says, When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. In this chapter, Luke, the author, doesn't tell us what those charges were. Though we can guess, first of all, because of what was said in the previous chapter, when the charges were presented before Felix for a hearing by him, and then also because of the way the Apostle Paul responds in verse 8. Paul responds by saying, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. What he's talking about there is a charge of heresy. That is something against the law, sacrilege. That is something against the temple or treason. That is something against Caesar. Those are very much the charges that were brought against the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had violated the law of the Jews by not observing the Sabbath correctly and other things, that he was guilty of sacrilege because he had prophesied the destruction of the temple and had said, though speaking of his own body, that it would be destroyed and after three days he would raise it up. And eventually the charge of treason, because that is what they finally 
persuaded Pilate to hear, this man makes himself out to be a king, and if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar. And it's because of that, because of his fear that such a charge would be made, that Pilate consented to the death of Christ. Now it's the same thing, same thing being said against Paul. And isn't it true that these are the accusations that are made against Christians in virtually any country where people feel free to do that? That we violate the laws or the customs of the nation? We don't see things the way those about us do. We don't have the same priorities. We don't march to the same drum. That is true, of course. Christians are a breed apart. Christians have another Lord. Isn't it true that one of the accusations is sacrilege, that we don't adhere to the religion of the people among whom we live, that we're destructive of religious values in the early church? The Christians were actually accused of being atheists because the argument went they didn't worship the gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman pantheon. And isn't it true that we're accused of treason in a certain sense, if not here in America, certainly this is what is happening behind the Iron Curtain, because Christians won't acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of the secular state. They try to obey it, they try to obey the laws, but the state is not an absolute for Christians. God himself is, and so the accusation is made. Well, what Paul said in his defense, quite simply, is that he had not done any of these things, at least not in terms that would bring him into any danger in a Roman court. And that, of course, was the whole of it, because as Luke, the author, says, although they brought many serious charges against him, they could not prove them. You see, they had accused him of going about all over the Roman Empire, stirring up trouble, but they didn't have any witnesses to that. They had accused him of sacrilege, but they couldn't prove that. They accused him of speaking against Caesar, and they couldn't prove that. So all Paul had to do in the circumstances is deny it. The burden of the proof rested with his accusers. He said, those are the accusations. I did not do those things. Let them prove it. And, of course, the proof was not forthcoming. Festus, being an upright judge in this respect, understood it, and so knew that there were no grounds for condemning the apostle. But, you see... Wishing to do the Jews a favor, he said, you know, I don't know quite how to resolve this, but it might help the situation if we would transfer your case up to Jerusalem and let you be tried there. It's hard for me to think that he did that with utterly pure motives. For one thing, he must have known the previous history. He must have known that Paul had been brought from Jerusalem to Caesarea precisely because of the danger he faced there. Why, he wasn't going to get what we would call a fair trial in Jerusalem. He needed a change of venue to get him out of there and into a situation where the trial could be fairly conducted. But even more than that, can we believe that Festus hadn't heard of the plot, that he hadn't looked at the records, that he didn't see that letter that had been written from Claudius Lysias explaining how there was a plot to kill Paul? Might it be? One of the commentators even suggests that this crafty Roman governor might even have thought that he could solve the dilemma if he could get Paul to concede to going up to Jerusalem for trial and if perhaps along the way he might be assassinated. 
And the governor could say, my goodness, that's too bad, but I didn't have anything to do with it. The man went up there willingly, and that really is a very sad thing indeed. I don't know if that's the case, but I do know that wishing to do a favor is not the way to conduct a legal trial. And the Apostle Paul, I believe, with the wisdom God had given him, understood the situation and recognized that the only way this could be fairly resolved was for him to call upon that which was his right as a Roman citizen and appeal from the local jurisdiction to the court of Caesar in Rome. I appeal to Caesar, is what he said. Festus, recognizing the validity of such an appeal, replied, you have appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. Well, we've looked at the accusers. We've looked at the judge. We look finally at the accused, Paul himself. And what a contrast. Here were the accusers who, out of hatred, were willing even to assassinate the prisoner. Here was Festus, who failed to do what he should have done as a judge because of his desire for popularity. But here was Paul, the prisoner, the accused, the one in danger of his life, who in the circumstances is the only one who actually emerges victorious. Oh, a prisoner, yes, yes. But a man who was victorious because he stood there in his integrity, innocent, depending upon God whom he trusted in this as well as in all other circumstances. And you see, what I want to say is that it is in that way that you and I have to stand in the world. We don't live in a world where the accusations against us are quite this fierce, though there are places in the world, as I've indicated, where these accusations are made and Christians do suffer physically. But you and I are faced by a world which has a value system hostile to the standards of the Lord Jesus Christ and in which we're constantly pressured to compromise away or deny our faith, how are you and I, weak human beings and sinful as well, going to stand against such pressure? How are we going to stand when the world says, oh, come on, you have to go along to get along. After all, you you have to bend a little bit. Nobody who is rigid ever gets ahead. You have to do things the way other people do if you're going to survive. Compromise here. Shave the truth there. You don't have to tell the truth in business. If you tell the truth, why your competitor is going to get the edge on you, and pretty soon you'll be broke. How are you and I going to stand for righteousness in a world like that? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, you have to know that God is sovereign over circumstances. That is, he's in charge. And that, of course, gives you great power because it means that even if, once you've taken a stand, things don't go right from a human point of view, that's fine because God understood those circumstances from the beginning. He knew they were going to come and they are part of his plan for your life. See, that's what gave power to the three friends of Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they stood against the most powerful monarch of the day, and perhaps one of the most powerful monarchs that ever lived, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had said that everybody had to bow down and worship the golden statue, which represented his reign. 
and they refused to do it. That was treason. It was a symbol of the unity and strength of the empire. They wouldn't bow. They said there is a god over the gods of this world. And so he hauled them in. He was about to throw them into the burning, fiery furnace. He was absolutely outraged. This king didn't even need due process of law. If he wanted to get rid of them, off they went to the furnace. And they stood there utterly unafraid. How can that be? He was threatening them with death. Where did the strength come from? It had to do with the sovereignty of God. They said, if God wants to deliver us from your hand, well, God will deliver us from your hand. God's able to do that. He's sovereign. But if not, God is sovereign if he decides not to, as well as if he decides to do it. But if not, they said, that's fine as well. But let it be known, we will not bow down to this idol which you, King Nebuchadnezzar, have set up. So the first thing you have to know, if you're going to stand against the world, is that God is sovereign over circumstances, and that includes even the most minute circumstances of your life. Secondly, you have to know the Bible. You have to know the Scriptures. And that's because the situations we face generally are not black and white. You face a black and white situation, generally you know that you should do the right thing and not compromise, but the situations that confront us out there in the world are often what we call gray situations, morally speaking. Seems that you ought to do this, but on the other hand, there is another side to it, and if it doesn't seem gray to you, and you talk to your friends, it'll become gray soon enough, because everyone sees it from a different point of view, and they're always conflicting perspectives and things that you should look into and this hand and that hand and three points and all of that. How do you find your way through the grayness of this life? It's only one way. It's the Scriptures. Scriptures are not gray. There are things there we may not understand, but the Scriptures speak clearly and they are described in Scripture as being that light which shines upon our path. The path ahead of us is dark because it's a dark world. And so we need the light of the Scripture to show us how we should go. If you face a great difficulty and you don't know which way to turn, you don't know what's right, you read the Word and you ask God to illuminate the situation for you, even as He illuminates the Word to your heart, and God will lead you. He says He will. God will lead you in the way that you should go. So that's the second thing. The first thing is to know that God is sovereign over circumstances, which is exactly what Paul knew. Secondly, to know the Scriptures, which is something Paul also knew. The third thing is this. You have to be willing, if necessary, to pay any price. That is, any price to remain a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, any price? Yes, any price. There are times in history when Christians are confronted with the choice, bow down or die. And so they have paid the greatest price of all. They have died for their faith. The history of the church is filled with the story of the martyrs. Many times it's not that, but it's things we value almost as highly. Reputation, success, advancement, good opinion of our friends, that type of thing. We say, why, if I acted as a Christian in that situation, so-and-so would never understand. My boss would never understand. My wife would never understand. My parents would never understand. And so we fail to do what's right because we're not willing to pay that price. We're not ready to relinquish everything to follow Jesus. You see, you can know that God is sovereign. You can know what is right because you study the Scriptures and you can still fail to do it. 
because you value something else more than your obedience to Christ. Whenever I think about this, I think of that section of the Gulag Archipelago in which the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn reflects on why, as he observed it in the Gulag, the notorious prison system of Russia, why it was that some prisoners seemed to survive the interrogation and stand and maintain their integrity, and others collapsed under the interrogation and failed to stand and lost their integrity. And he says, as he reflects on it, it all has to do with the price and the willingness to pay it. And then he said, you know, when you go into the prison, you have to say to yourself right at the threshold, my cozy past is behind me, my life is over, I am doomed to die. Sooner or later, and if the truth be told, it's better to die sooner. My family is of no use to me, my possessions are of no use to me, even my body is alien to me. Nothing now matters to me but my soul. And then, after having put it in such stark terms, he says at the end, only the prisoner who has renounced everything will gain the victory. You and I are servants, slaves, prisoners, if you will, of Jesus Christ. The only way we're going to stand against the world in the final analysis is if we're willing to give up everything to follow him. You say everything? Yes, everything. But why should you and I be surprised? Jesus gave up everything. And he said to his followers, if you would follow me, you must give up everything too, because what I call you to do is to take up your cross, a symbol of your death, and follow me. Is that tragic? Not tragic at all. That is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, the faith of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we live in such a paltry age where even those who are in positions of great leadership compromise right and left, betray the faith because we value things or position or reputation more and we value the approval of our Lord. Our Father, we long for a time when your people are marked, like the Apostle Paul, by that kind of character. And so we ask that you would make a beginning in us for the sake of Christ. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, 
North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.